Hello and welcome to the Rare Possessions Podcast. I'm Nick Galetti, and with me is Jared Riddick, the archivist for Book of Mormon Central. And later we're going to be joined by Neil Rapley, also of Book of Mormon Central. And this chapter is a really fun chapter because we have some interesting things about the the day-to-day life of Nephi and the children of Lehi that are wandering. But we also have some significant archaeological evidence that is presented that is due to some modern-day scholarship that George Q. Cannon didn't know about when he wrote this chapter. But anyway, let's, let's get into talking about some of the challenges that they had with respect to hunting and eating. Indeed. Well, they had a few. I mean, Nephi's steel bow breaks. Laman and Lemuel's bow breaks their strings. We assume Sam and the sons of Ishmael probably had issues with their weaponry if they had any as well. But they're all, compl- they're all hangry. <laughs> I believe it's the modern term. Um, and they're mad at Nephi. Yeah. They're all mad at Nephi for some reason. Like, your, your guys' stuff broke too. But even even Lehi is murmuring. And and it seems to be the canon implies that perhaps Nephi might have been the best hunter or the one that was most primarily responsible for food. Mm-hmm. I think so. And, yeah, large in stature. He's got – large in stature, we don't hear it mentioned here, but that will give you more uh, ability to draw on a bow and more pressure behind a shot. Sure. More likely to make a kill. And so we see Nephi here being faithful, actually seeking out knowledge from the Lord, still going to his father to ask where to hunt. And that's got to be a humbling moment for Lehi right there to realize my son, my youngest son at this point, Jacob and Joseph running around, is following the Lord and I'm not. And he has to consult the Liahona. And then they see the writing upon the Liahona and they have a moment of fear and trembling, which I think is interesting. We don't know what the nature of the writing on the Liahona was. Um, some speculate scripture, some other things that were engraved on it. Because it mentions it changes from time to time. Right. And I wonder about that. We always joke about that with our scriptures, that somebody keeps sneaking in and putting things in my scriptures when I'm right. not looking. And uh, I think it's the same thing for Lehi, is they're seeing these scriptures that are engraving and they're, re- they're interpreting them and realizing their applicability in different ways. And so Nephi is able to fashion a new bow, a new arrow, something that the arrow part is unique. So there's been some speculation on this, some scholarship on this, but Nephi's metal bow probably wouldn't have been able to use, would have used a different type of arrow than a wooden bow would have. It would have been a, a different type of shaft for the arrow, probably heavier that a wooden bow wouldn't be able to support. So Nephi's got to make new arrows for his new bow as well. Right. Before we get into Nahum, we have also in this chapter where Ishmael dies. Ishmael dies. And this is a big turning point for the camp because it just got real, right? Before it was uncomfortable, it wasn't home, it was changing, whatever their complaints were. But now dad's dead. But now there's a death. And it begins, as it does naturally with a lot of people, you begin to question your own future when you're around death. So how does the death of Ishmael affect the camp? For me, this is where uh, Ishmael's family really kind of comes to life in a way. They become really three-dimensional. Um. They are mourning. They are heartbroken. They want to know, why are we in the wilderness? We have to bear children. We have to labor. Our father is dead. What do we do? And Laman and Lemuel probably are moved by the plight of their wives here, want to rebel. Ishmael's sons do as well. I mean, their father is dead. Their father-in-law is dead. I mean, we don't consider maybe how the death of Ishmael impacted them. They're all together in the wilderness for a while. There's not. They may have encountered other travelers or been in camps, but... This is their group. This is who they've gotten to know. And the death of one person has to hit them hard. Yeah. And I think that's why, frankly, that Nephi mentions it like this. Ishmael's gone. One of the patriarchs of the camp is gone. 
and this is something that's going to change things from things going forward. Lehman and Lemuel definitely changed from this point forward. They seem to make the transition from murmuring, complaining, not wanting to do something, or acting in fits of anger to now actively plotting. Like, we are going to murder our father and our brother and go back to Jerusalem. This and they had support in it. And they had support, and they, ha- they, have, the, they have Ishmael's sons that support them. And frankly, it's, it's understandable a little bit why Ishmael's sons would have gone along with it there. Everybody's in mourning. Everybody's a little bit angry right now. Lack of food probably didn't help. They're probably still coming off that. But there's a lot of a lot to unpack here that we sometimes don't spend time on. Well, and then we and have Canon does. Yeah, and he does a really good job of it, actually, because he talks about all the intricacies of we've got how Laban and Lemuel are feeling on one hand, and then we've got Nephi, who is placing his trust in the Lord and the Leahona and is able to provide food. See, that's that's part of what's going on here, too, is people are seeing that food is being provided, yet we're also losing our father. So what are we getting and what are we losing is this theme as well as we as we go through their their journey. Our younger brother-in-law seems to make himself a ruler over us. That's probably what they're saying. Yeah. Like, well, I'm not going to lose my agency to him. This brings us to Nahum, which is where Ishmael was buried. And mm-hmm. it was specifically mentioned as a place yeah. in the Book of Mormon. Yeah, at, at that point in First Nephi, going up to things... It's the place we call that they call Valley of Umiel, the place they call River Laman, the uh, place they call Shazer. This is the place which was called Nahum. They did not name this place. It was somewhere that already existed. And so it's interesting distinction, and we, and we see why now. So this is the point of the conversation where we have Neil Rapley come on, and he's going to give us some information about Nahum and why that's— it's actually probably the biggest archaeological evidence for the Book of Mormon, or is that an overstatement? Uh, no, I don't. I don't think that's an overstatement. It's probably the most direct, for sure, okay. uh, of of the evidence we have for the Book of Mormon. I guess just give some background. Uh, in 1978, in the Enzyme, there was an article published by Ross T. Christensen, who, just as a personal aside, was my dad's home teacher. Nice. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he published a short note in the Enzyme saying, "Hey, I found this name Nehem." on an old map from Arabia, and maybe that's related to the Book of Mormon Nahum. At the time, you know, it was just kind of an interesting thing because these maps weren't ancient. They were old, but, you know, they certainly weren't from Lehi's time. They were from the 1700s. And so it was just kind of like a gee whiz. Uh, Maybe people should look into this more. Uh, But six years later, in 1984, is when a fellow named Warren Astin, who lived in Australia at the time, noticed this Enzyme article. He just grabbed a random Enzyme for his commute to work and uh, was flipping through it and noticed this and thought, well, gee whiz, I wonder if anybody's followed up on any of this. Right. He called up Farms, which was pretty brand new at the time and was still kind of getting its act together, and said, hey, have you guys looked into this? And they were like, well, uh, no, we haven't. (laughs) And so they hadn't looked into it yet. And uh, so Warren kind of took it upon himself to start investigating this. And as he started digging and and whatnot, he found a whole bunch of references to the Nehem or Nehem tribe and territory in uh, Islamic sources going all the way back to the Prophet Muhammad himself, who mentioned Mm. uh, the Nehem tribe in a letter in 620 AD. Uh, And so that was some pretty good legwork to trace this place back quite a ways, but that's kind of where the trail ended for Warren at that point. And then in 1997, S. Kent Brown, a professor at BYU, 
uh, was flipping through a museum catalog and saw an altar there. And inscribed on this altar was the name of a fellow named Biathtar. And he was called a Nehemite. And this altar was from South Arabia, the same region where this Nehem region was located on the map. And about the, you know, the same general area where Lehi and his family would have been when, when Ishmael died. Right. The significance of this altar was it had been dated by archeo- the archaeologist who had dug it up to the 7th or 6th century B.C. And so right there on this altar was attestation that the Nehem tribe, for whom the territory or region of Nehem had been named, was in fact living in that same general area in Lehi's time. You know, we can now say with some confidence that uh, there was indeed a place called Nehem, a, a, a tribe living there and uh, in, in their territory called Nehem in the area at the time that Lehi would have passed through. Now, I seem to recall some other significance about this because it was a place of burial, correct? Uh, yeah. Um, throughout that region is some of the largest burial complexes, ancient burial complexes, uh, known in, in all, of, uh, all of South Arabia. In fact, what's really interesting about, uh, about these burials is if you, if you plot the different burial sites that have been found in the area on a map, they kind of form a trail from the Wadi Jaff, which is uh, the Nehem region is in the mountains adjacent to the Wadi Jaff. You have these burial complexes extending out eastward from there. And scholars think that these are the graveyards of travelers along the, the trade routes and other travelers using those trails and, and burying their dead as, as they travel, which, of course, is exactly what we have happening in the Book of Mormon when they arrive at Nahum and they bury their loved one, Ishmael, uh, and then they continue eastward, which is, like I said, you can, kind of, you can almost plot these along an eastward trail and you can see this is where the trade routes were going, is uh, from, from this region uh, near Nahum out eastward towards uh, the Omani coast. So. so this isn't just luck of the draw that he found a place on the map that's a similar name, but it actually is a similar function. It's all being used for that way that was culturally unknown at the time that Joseph had the Book of Mormon translated. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there are several points of convergence here. You've got the fact that you have a, a place called Nehem, we can document it back to the 6th century BC, 6th or 7th century. There are trails and routes extending out eastward, which is what it says happened after they buried Ishmael. They travel eastward. There is extensive burials, and those burials are more than likely being used in the same way for for people transient, people passing through the area as they travel along the the important roads of the time. Yeah, All of those details are what we get in the Book of Mormon as well. And so. it also seems like it must be happening enough that they needed a place like that, right? Well, yeah. Enough I mean, people are dying. I mean, you, you get enough people. Uh, I mean, the, the kingdoms of South Arabia were thriving off of the incense trade at the time. And so there was just a lot of traffic moving along these routes. And, uh, you know, this is the ancient world. And this, this, is, this isn't driving to California with your family in a minivan, right? right. This is, but it wasn't uncommon. Yeah, it wasn't uncommon for for uh, for fellow travelers to to pass away and and die and 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 so there is you know there's this concentration of of uh, of graves in this area that 
like I said, scholars believe are, are representative of that the common occurrence along the trail of, of a loved one dying and, you know, needing to bury them. So Excellent. Yeah. Well, that gives us some further context for the reading of Chapter 8 in Life of Nephi by George Q. Cannon. The Life of Nephi, the Son of Lehi, Chapter 8. In looking through the description of a journey in this country by a traveler of the name of Whalen in 1854, we were struck with the remarkable coincidence between the direction in which he traveled and that traveled by Lehi and company upwards of 24 centuries before. He says, The direction was in general during the whole of our route south-southeast, according to the rule which the people of that land give a traveler about to traverse this desert, so to direct his course that he always has the polar star on his left shoulder blade. As they traveled, they killed game by the way, occasionally camping to rest and obtain more food. We are not told what the wild animals were which they used for food, but in modern times the gazelle, antelope, and mountain goat are numerous in that region and are hunted by the Arabs, the flesh of the goat especially is excellent. The ostrich also is common. Partridges and quails and pigeons of various kinds are plentiful, as also wild ducks along the coast of the Red Sea. Some of the mountains in these days are said to abound in game. The ass runs wild in many parts and is hunted by the Arabs, but only for the sake of his skin. Doubtless Lehi and his company found the game very abundant in places. These places would be selected for their camps while they rested and obtained new supplies. For meat was their principal, if not sole diet while in the wilderness, and this uncooked or raw. The Lord did not suffer them to make much fire, for he had said to them, I will make thy food become sweet, that ye cook it not. It is probable that when they secured a quantity of game, they dried the meat so that it would be lighter to carry and keep better. This they could do in that climate without the aid of fires. At one of their camping places, where they had stopped for the purposes of resting and obtaining food, Nephi, while out hunting, had the misfortune to break his bow, which was made of fine steel. It seems from the effect this accident had upon his brothers that Nephi was the best and most skillful hunter of the party and their chief dependence to procure them food. They were angry with him because he had broken his bow. For, as the record says, we did obtain no food. They had to return to their families without any, and as they were all much fatigued with traveling, they suffered considerably for the want of something to eat. This, added to their other privations and afflictions, was more than Laman and Lemuel and the sons of Ishmael would patiently bear. They complained bitterly of their sufferings, but bad feelings were not confined to them upon this sorrowful and trying occasion. Even Lehi himself, began to murmur against the Lord his God. Though Nephi was afflicted with the rest, he did not lose his patience or self-control. He remonstrated with his brothers for their complaints against the Lord, and as their bows had lost their spring and appeared to be of no value as weapons of the chase, he found himself under the necessity of making a wooden bow and arrow. Having done this, and being provided with a sling and with stones, he asked his father in what direction he should go to obtain food. It seems that his energetic words and remonstrances had had the effect to cause them to humble themselves. It will be noticed that it was to his brothers his remonstrances were addressed. He had been told that he should be their ruler and their teacher. It was quite proper, therefore, that he should correct them. But not so with his father. 
He was still his leader, and he looked up to and honored him. Yet Lehi must have heard what he said to his brethren, and his remarks must have had their effect upon him. Lehi saw his sin and murmuring against the Lord, and he was chastened and brought down in the depths of sorrow. The voice of the Lord said to him in reply to his inquiry, Look upon the ball, and behold the things which are written. We are not told what was there written, but the effect of reading it was to cause Lehi and his sons and Ishmael's sons and the women to fear and tremble exceedingly. Nephi was directed by the ball to go to the top of the mountain, where he succeeded in killing several wild animals, which he carried back to camp. Supplied once more with food, the people were filled with joy, and they humbled themselves before the Lord and gave him thanks. For some time after leaving this camping place, they traveled south, southeast, and stopped at a suitable spot. Here Ishmael died and was buried at a place which was called Nahum. From all that is said of Ishmael, we could infer that he was a patient, humble, and faithful man. In all the outbreaks of his sons and two daughters and sons-in-law, Laman and Lemuel, he is not mentioned as giving them any support or countenance. On the contrary, at the time the family was on the way from Jerusalem to the valley of Lemuel, and Laman and Lemuel and his sons and two daughters expressed the determination to go back to Jerusalem, it was against Ishmael and wife and three daughters and Sam and himself as Nephi informs us, they rebelled. It is clear that he did not desire to go back. He had set his face to serve the Lord and was determined, apparently, to obey him. His death was a severe blow to his family. It was seized by some of them as an occasion for another outbreak. His daughters mourned exceedingly at his departure. This appeared to them to be the climax of all their troubles. They had been wandering for a long time in the wilderness. They had suffered from hunger, thirst, and fatigue. They had been afflicted with the heat and doubtless with the poisonous Syracos of the desert. And now, to crown all, their father had died, and staring them in the face, there was the probability that they themselves would perish in the wilderness from hunger. Their murmuring and discontent found vent against Lehi. He was the author, they thought, of all their misery. He had led them away from their pleasant home in Jerusalem. He had launched them upon this new and distasteful life. And in this he had been aided by Nephi, whom they looked upon as being as bad as he. They wanted to return to Jerusalem. Two of these daughters of Ishmael were the wives of Laman and Lemuel. Nephi, Sam, and Zoram had each a wife of the same family. It is not probable that these last indulged in these unreasonable and wicked feelings and talk, but without doubt the two former did, as well as their brothers' wives. Laman was aroused by their grief and their complaints. They gave voice to the thoughts which he himself entertained. He therefore proposed to Lemuel and to his brothers-in-law, the sons of Ishmael, that they should kill his father Lehi and his brother Nephi. He accused Nephi of taking it upon him to be their ruler and their teacher. They were his older brothers, and what right had he to do this? Now, said he, Nephi says the Lord has talked with him, and also that angels have ministered unto him. But behold, we know he lies unto us. He tells us these things, and worketh many things by his cunning arts that he may deceive our eyes, thinking, perhaps, that he may lead us away unto some strange wilderness, and after he has led us away, he has thought to make himself a king and a ruler over us, that he may do with us according to his will and pleasure. He and his father, he said, were alike. It was upon their ideas the company was acting, and by which it was led. This was Laman's method of arousing hatred against his father and brother. His plan was to kill them. Then what would hinder him and those who thought as he did from getting control and leading the company back to Jerusalem? Their old home appeared to be 
ever in the thoughts of Laman and Lemuel. They seemed to entertain no doubts about its safety and prosperity, notwithstanding all that their father and their brother Nephi said to them upon the subject. It was with great reluctance that they left their native city, Jerusalem. They were never satisfied with their father for leading them away from there. While indulging in their frequent fits of murmuring, they accused him of being visionary and of being misled by his foolish imaginations. Thank you for listening to the Rare Possessions Podcast from the archives of Book of Mormon Central. For the latest information on additions to the Book of Mormon Central archive, or to inquire about archive items like this one, visit us online at archive.bookofmormoncentral.org.